Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom, and for the secular world, Shana Tovah, Happy New Year. The epistle of James was always a, a fun one. And I remember reading about how uh, Martin Luther wasn't a fan. He called it a uh, full of straw because people would use it as a way to negate faith and they would twist certain things that James pulls on and explains and lays out saying that you have to walk out your faith as a way to excuse the necessity of faith. And that is absolutely not what James does. So we'll begin. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Yeshua Messiah to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Being double-minded. Anytime, show of hands, who has any degree, any kind of degree? There's more of you than that. Come on. Going about your studies, if you are the night before a test and you know you have to study, and you have two choices. Choice A, you make a pot of coffee and you dedicate yourself to that study. Option B, Netflix. What do you do? If you are double-minded and say, hey, it's a big test, but I can go back and forth between the two, you probably aren't going to have a great result the next day. You are being double-minded. You're trying to do two things at once. You have your mind in two places at the same time. And it produces an instability, which in this case will reveal itself in your grade. I had a friend years ago encourage me not to be double-minded in a specific endeavor. And, And I'll explain. This is over a decade ago, and I was at a place where I was a little depressed. And depression is usually when you are not doing something you know you could be doing, when you're not living up to what you know God has called you to. And so you'll start to feel this uneasiness with yourself and with life because you know you're not living up to what you could be and what you could do and what God is calling you to do. So you become depressed. So he told me, well, hey, Rusty, you could do an Iron Man. For those of you who don't know, an Iron Man is a triathlon, which includes a 2.4-mile swim in open water, followed by a 112-mile bike ride, usually in a very hilly area. Then you run a marathon, 26.2 miles. Now, he knew me pretty well because... Typically, if someone says, I'm depressed, and you say, well, you could do an Ironman, they, they laugh at you, 
ask if you're on some sort of controlled substance that's making you say these crazy things. I asked him for more information because I'd never done a triathlon before. So he said, well, I did one this last year and I really enjoyed it, but I didn't have a lot of time to prep because he'd just gotten back from deployment. So he said, whatever you do, however you go about this, you're going to have to be really dedicated in your training. This is going to be like a part-time job. Great. That's what I wanted. A part-time job that cost me money. So he walked me through his experience with it, and he said, well, the swim wasn't a problem because I'm a strong swimmer. And he says, and I know you are too, so that's fine. Don't worry about the swim. The bike ride was an issue because I don't like to ride bicycles, and I don't either. So he said the first about six miles had roughly a mile of incline. So your elevation changed that much very quickly. And he said he literally started to spaz. uh, His entire body went to spasm, and he fell off the bike and just kind of spazzed out on the side of the road for a little bit as people drove past him, which he said was kind of embarrassing, but it eventually went away, and he got back on his bike. Uh, And he he finished, and he said, hey, whatever you do, sign up for the the IV. They'll give you at the end. And I go, they're going to give me an IV? (laughs) You're not selling this, buddy. (laughs) And he goes, no, 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 you're going to want it. Trust me, it's great. It was a little too good for me. And I say, what do you mean it was too good for you? And he goes, well, you've been going all day. And and so uh, I actually, I was so exhausted at the end. Well, I got my IV. This is true. He goes, I passed out and peed myself. (laughs) And so I didn't put it past him to be messing with me a little bit at this point, but I go, okay. And so he says, Anyways, focus on your training, because if you don't prep, if you try to do a whole bunch of other things in your life, this is going to go really, really bad. So whatever you do, focus. In other words, do not be double-minded. James tells us some interesting things in how he opens his epistle, and how he opens it is also very fascinating, because when you write someone a letter, the first things you say are usually at the forefront of your mind are the first things you want to get out. So James tells us three things very quickly in how he opens his epistle. One, that God will make a way to fix mistakes and repair damage that you've done, that if you're honest, is probably your fault. Two, God wants you to find enjoyment in that process. This is on the slides. And three, God wants your attention and your emotion, not just a mechanical walking through of things. So verse one, James a bondservant of God and the Lord Yeshua Messiah to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. No one else opens their letters like this. Like in Philippians, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints uh, in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. He'll identify himself as an apostle sometime, but not James. And this is, most commentators and scholars believe, James, the half-brother to Yeshua. And he wrote this somewhere between the Jerusalem council and when he was killed. Yet he identifies himself not as an apostle, not even as the brother of the master, the brother of Messiah. He says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Yeshua Messiah. That is how he chose to identify himself. Most of us, when we write letters, 
or the tagline in our work emails. It'll have credentials or the letters after our names. All he chose to identify himself when he's writing this letter is a bond servant of God and of the Lord Yeshua. It's also interesting, he says, to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. So one, we know his audience is primarily Jewish. That could have been because when they were writing this, there were not a lot of Gentile believers yet. But he's also saying something very specific to the 12, not just to the 12 tribes in general, but he says scattered abroad. What is he very intentionally reminding everyone of here? That they are in exile. That they, along with their ancestors, did something to be kicked out of the land. He opens this by identifying himself as the bondservant of God, and I'm addressing this to people who are in exile. Why are they there? Well, Deuteronomy 28, which is a chapter a lot of people love the first part of, because it's the blessings, and we all want to love the blessings. We tend to ignore the curses because those make us uncomfortable. Because a lot of us don't like to admit that your sin, even when it's hidden from everyone around you, affects your life. We like to try to pretend that it doesn't, that I can be double-minded in how we live, that I can do this one thing that nobody sees, but then everyone else sees this other person. God says, furthermore, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. James is intentionally reminding them of this, that their disobedience and the disobedience of their ancestors has them where they're at, not living in the land. Further, in Deuteronomy 30, God says, So it will be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have placed before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul in accordance with everything that I am commanding you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, from your dispersion abroad, and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of your scattered countrymen are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will be good to you and make you more numerous than your forefathers. James reminds his audience of past mistakes in his opening. He's reminding them also, this exile thing is not forever. And how you proceed the life you live is very consequential to your future. He reminds his audience of where they're at and why they are there. And that God has already laid out in the Torah, in the initial plan before they cross the Jordan, how we can fix this. The second thing he moves on to is God wants you to find enjoyment in the process. That is not something we like to hear. 
Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. The King James translates it when you fall into diverse temptations. When you're joyful, you are able to think creatively and you're curious. When you're not joyful, when you're throwing a fit, when you're angry, you're not very creative. And we'll often look at scripture and say, well, this only has a practical application or this only has a spiritual application. And we won't realize it has both, that often God is telling us a number of things at the same time. When you are encountering various trials, as James calls it, you have to be joyful. Because, as he already pointed out, you got yourself into this mess. So, you might as well enjoy the process that God's going to take you through. That word, encounter various trials, by the way, the word encounter you'll see it also translated fall into or fall among. And it's very, very similar to in Psalm uh, 116.3. The snares of death encompassed me and the terrors of Sheol came upon me and I found distress and sorrow. It encompassed you. It comes upon you. You didn't ask for it. There's certain pain that some of us ask for. If I go jump into an ice bath, I can't be asking God, why am I cold? Some people do, but... We do ask God, why is this happening to me when we have a relationship fall apart? When you lose a job, when you lose a family member, when something devastating happens, why is this happening to me? And then you have a choice. You can point your finger at God and be angry or you can be humble and ask him earnestly, what are you trying? What are you wanting me to learn? What are you trying to teach me in this? Each of us gets to choose between the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And if you are disciplined in your walk with God, if you consider it all joy, when you encounter trials, then you will walk through the pain of discipline, which is far lighter than the pain of regret. This doesn't mean we act like bad things aren't happening around us. You know, that picture of the house on fire and saying, oh, this is fine, this is fine. You don't do that. Don't ignore what's happening, but ask God, how are you wanting me to proceed from here? And we're supposed to enjoy various trials. James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or as the King James says, patience. Okay. And he touches on a very interesting thing that has only become an issue more recently in our society for most people. And that is, your comfort is killing you. I'll explain. We are not meant to be at room temperature at all times. We are not meant to eat food six meals a day continuously. We are not meant to sit anywhere for too terribly long. Our bodies do not respond well. We are not meant to be lukewarm. Our bodies operate best when we have exercise, when we have movement. There are times you need to go without food. Longer than Yom Kippur. 
There are all kinds of things that happen. In modern society, this is one of the first times when entire generations are growing up where you've never really been hot, you've never really been cold, you've never really been hungry, you've never really been exhausted. And it shows in declines in physical health and mental health and spiritual health because hardship makes us stronger. Anyone who's spent any time only doing just physical exercise know the more time you put in, you will get that out. These same things work spiritually. You need exercise. And while we can apply this in all kinds of physical ways, I mean spiritually because how much more for your soul? If you shirk away at hardship, if every time something difficult comes by, you avoid it, you ignore it, you take the easy path, you will have a very difficult, unfulfilling life. If you take the difficult path, ask God, what is it you want me to do? And accept it as joyfully as you can and forgive yourself for when you lose some of that joy and come back to him quickly you will have a far more fulfilled life. I remember the words of an Olympic athlete who escaped Soviet, uh, Soviet-controlled Poland. He had a very hard life, very, very hard. Yet he is an extremely happy man. And he said, hard choices, easy life. Easy choices, hard life. Know that as you go through your trials, the testing of your faith will produce patience. And that as you show that endurance, that patience, bear in mind it will affect the others around you. I remember watching a a video of an officer in the military going through special forces selection. And these guys are being just beat, not punched, but... They're, they're cold, wet, tired, been up for days. And one of the instructors is giving him a talking to. And he's saying, you're walking around acting pathetic. Imagine how uplifting it will be for all the guys that are supposed to be following you to look back at you when they're tired, when they're bleeding and they're not sure why, when their clothes are chafing them all over, they're exhausted, they're hungry, they look back at you, and they see a smile on your face. Imagine how uplifting that is for them. But if they see you throwing a fit and struggling and angry, they are going to amplify that. So know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Fathers, set the tone for your home. Set the tone for your kids. It's not that you have to be perfect, but whatever you show your children and the tone you set for your wife, that is going to be amplified. Wives, understand you have more control over your husbands than many of you want to admit. And God gave you the ability to uh, enhance the day or to, uh, well, whatever the opposite of enhance is. Patience produces, patience and endurance are not easy things to acquire. Proverbs 24.10, If you show yourself lacking courage on the day of distress, your strength is meager. 
Oftentimes, you're going through a trial. You're going through a problem because God wants you to learn and grow. And we stomp our feet. We throw a fit because of this issue we have, because things aren't going our way. Or we'll see things happening on a national scale, something that none of us can actually control, but we'll let it consume our minds and our thoughts. And that robs us of the energy to actually affect change in our own lives. Do not show yourself lacking courage. It's also in the, in the book of Sirach, which is in the Apocrypha. It's not in the scripture. My child, when you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for testing. Set your heart right and be steadfast and do not be uh, impetuous in time of calamity. Cling to him and do not depart so that your last days may be prosperous. Accept whatever befalls you, and in times of humiliation, be patient. Charles Spurgeon said, There are no crown bearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. If you think you are going to get to go through life without tests and trials, and hear the words, well done, faithful servant, you are lying to yourself. Messiah Yeshua said, And you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Messiah Yeshua is your foundation. There is no other author. There is no other person. There's nothing else you can study. And I very intentionally cited an apocryphal text and a Christian author just before this, both of which I think are great, If your foundation is set anywhere else, I don't care if it's in C.S. Lewis and Christian authors or Talmud and Rashi, your priorities are wrong. Everything you do in your life, whatever it is, whatever you study, has to be done from a foundation in God's word. There is nothing else because the world will hate you for his sake. James 1, verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's a tough task. If I I asked someone to read Torah next week, and I said, I want you to be perfect and complete in your reading, they might uh, not be so eager to read. Because that's a very high bar. But James is saying, hey, 12 tribes scattered abroad. You got yourself to where you are. If you didn't, your parents did or their parents. Consider it joy when you encounter trials. Don't be upset. Don't be angry. You know why this is happening. Don't act confused. And let this impact you and change you so that you can become perfect and complete. Clark, in his, in his commentary, says, these expressions in their present application are by some thought to be barred from the Grecian games. The man was perfect who was in any of the athletic exercises uh, had got the victory. He was entire, having everything complete who had the victory in the pentathlon in each of the five 
exercises. So the pentathlon was a discus throw, a long jump, a javelin throw, a run, probably a, not a long distance run, and a wrestling match. That is a very diverse skill set. Usually runners aren't great wrestlers, and if you're, if you're good at one thing, usually it means you're lacking in another. So this meant an all-around well, uh, well-developed athlete. So he proposes James is borrowing that athletic context of someone who has been diligent in training their body, in watching what they consume, in watching how they spend their time, in watching the people that are around. Because if all of your friends are couch potatoes, what are you going to be? A couch potato. If your friends are studious, read their Bibles and pray regularly, that will impact you. You've watched who you're around. You've watched how you spend your time. And when you encounter trials... You're encouraged. You press in. You move forward. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What else had to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing? Yeshua. And we are called to be his disciples. Yeshua was the perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice could not come before God or the priests, unless it was perfect. If a sacrifice had a, a split lip, if it had a blemish, it was not acceptable. Paul says in Romans, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. James is exhorting the believers, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, that they need to take these trials that they are encountering in the diaspora as a call to holiness, not a call to assimilate, not a call to look more Greek or look more Roman, not a call to fit in and blend in and take the comfortable route. The path to holiness, he's saying, has an ultimate goal of perfection. And no matter how far you are from that goal, that is your target, that Messiah Yeshua is your goal. And it is a lifelong one, and it is often painful. James would know. He paid for it with his life. Your flesh will not like the refining fire at all. It doesn't. Mine didn't. One month into training for that triathlon, I was icing both of my knees uh, because they were severely inflamed because I'd gone from running about 10 miles a week to running over 40 miles a week. And it hurt to walk, even less run. So I was taking giant ice bags and just trying to freeze my knees out of inflammation. Your flesh does not like the refining fire. And it will be extremely easy when you encounter problems, hiccups, issues. Hey, God, I tried this, just like in the Torah portion today. Moses saying, well, what about this? What about that? And as we saw, and it was explained in the video, yeah, it's not going to work at first. You're going to need to do some rework. You need to come back again and again. One plague. No, 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 no. There's going to be 10 plagues. This is way more drawn out than that. This is not going to be a quick process. We want it to be quick, but God does not work that way. So how do we proceed when we encounter these issues, when we encounter these various trials? various temptations as we're producing endurance and attempting to be perfect. 
James says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Where does wisdom come from? God. Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. It's in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. Bold words. Very bold words that only God's word can fulfill. There's a blessing in the Amidah, a blessing for, for knowledge or wisdom. Your grace, you grace humanity with knowledge and teach mortals understanding. Grace us with the knowledge, understanding, and discernment that come from you. Blessed are you, Lord, who graciously grants knowledge. Uh, a lot of people in my house have, have read that prayer because uh, a portion of that is actually um, on the wall next to the coffee pot about how God rouses humanity with mercy. And it's an interesting thing because knowledge, wisdom should change you. If, I give you, if you were given wisdom and then you're still the same person you were before, you didn't receive it. Just like if I ask you to drink 12 cups of water, it's just going to make you have to go to the bathroom. If you drink 12 cups of coffee, you will be a different person in some degree. You might not be a better person, but you will act differently. Wisdom comes with change, that you have to become different. Solomon became a different man after God gave him wisdom. He became world-renowned. The queen of Sheba had to come check it out for herself. Hey, is what I'm hearing about you actually true? Do you live up to the hype? And he exceeded it. Ask God to change you. And this is where we get to something that a lot of us don't want to do. Because to some degree, we buy into this cultural thing that you're great just as you are. And in a way, yes, God loves you where you're at. He also loves you way too much to leave you there. And as you grow in wisdom, that should come with a change because faith without works is dead, being alone. If God gives you wisdom and it has no impact on your life, if you continue just as you were, then you're not walking in faith. So God will make a way to fix your mistakes, even those of us in Plano, Texas, in the diaspora, and repair the damage. And he wants you to find enjoyment in that process. If you find yourself kicking and screaming over a problem for too terribly long, that becomes an issue. That's a problem. You can say, hey, if you notice a friend, why are you so uh, fiery lately? They can say, well... I had this argument with my spouse, with my mom, with my dad, and I'm essentially having this one giant emotional reaction. 
Do it for a couple hours, maybe a day, you have an attitude. Do it for a year, and that's a personality trait. God wants your attention and your emotion. He doesn't just want you to mechanically obey and stomp your feet and have to be dragged along everywhere. It is not enough for you to mechanically obey. Even the rabbis, they discuss this a number of times, where if you were to just imprint the Torah into someone's mind and they were to follow it robotically, that would be an extremely immoral person. If someone simply mechanically followed every commandment in Torah, that it takes God's spirit and his love and his wisdom poured into your life continually to actually serve him. It is not enough to follow it robotically. It isn't enough to just do it even though you actually want to do something else. For example, we often will try to tell ourselves, well, I don't, I don't like this or that. For example, I was raised in a home where we did not consume uh, trife. Now, over the years, I've had people say, oh, well, this is too bad, but you hate this. Now, I've said I've never had bacon, for example, pork bacon. And I have it on great authority that it tastes fantastic. The reason I don't eat it isn't because I think it tastes bad. It's because God says not to in Leviticus 11. It's not because a taste issue. Your reason for obedience cannot be just how you feel. If you are gauging your your feelings and how I feel is going to determine how I obey God's word, you're setting yourself up for failure. So when you notice that God's word says one thing and your feelings are telling you another, your flesh is pulling you in a different direction, that should put you in prayer. And one of the most uncomfortable things you will ever do is to get on your knees and ask God earnestly with a true passionate desire to change how you feel about something so your emotions line up with his spirit. James finishes out this section. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. That word double-minded also means double-souled. So where is your attention and your emotion? Are you supposed to be studying for a test, but you're spending your time on Netflix? Are you supposed to be preparing for an event, physical, spiritual, Are you being called to step up in some other part of your life? And instead, you're being double-minded about it. You're being half-hearted. You're only giving it some of your effort. Maybe you're really gifted, and your 40% is someone else's 100%. So you say, they'll never know what I'm actually capable of because I can just give a half-hearted effort, and they'll think I'm doing great. You will know, and so will God. So how did that race go? 
that, that training that I took on. Well, eh. if anyone thinks, by the way, that this is like some sort of weird, humble brag, no. Um, my only goal in this was to finish before, the, uh, before I was disqualified because I knew I wasn't coming into it highly competitive. I'd never done a triathlon before, so this is not some weird, humble brag um, at all. If you think it is, then I'm sorry, but it's not. Uh, and to not die, because that's a thing, apparently. My, my wife pointed this out a couple months before. She goes, hey, you know, some pe- people die during these. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I came out of the water uh, wearing a wetsuit because it's in a lake, and the lake's like 63 degrees, so you have to wear a wetsuit in the water. And I, I did all this on a budget, uh, so I borrowed my buddy's wetsuit. And what I didn't think of ahead of time was that he's a little smaller than me. <laughs> so besides the ridiculous amounts of baby powder it took to get this thing on, there's no pictures, which I kind of wish there were. According to my wife, I came out of the water white, like ghost white. Because as soon as I put it on, it slowly started to choke me. I knew this was kind of happening because as I'm in the middle of this open water swim, it crossed my mind to take a nap. So I was a little low on oxygen. Uh, The bike ride was a bike ride, and I have not ridden a bicycle since because it is not my favorite thing. And I'm an adult, and I have a car. (laughs) So I went through the bike ride. I finished the run. Uh, It was not a good time. I just finished fast enough to uh, not be disqualified. There was a person who finished the bike 20 or so minutes ahead of me, saw where he was on the clock, and quit. That kind of annoyed me. I don't know why, it just did. So I took my friend's advice, and I signed up for the IV. And so I'm thinking, as I, as I cross the finish line, it, you know, not a lot of time to spare. I've been moving for close to 16 hours at this point. And I didn't know how to stop moving. I'm just kind of walking across. And this guy's trying to talk to me. I just kind of keep walking because I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't stop. And so he's like, what do you want? And I go, I don't know. And he goes, well, how about you come over to the medic tent? Great. That sounds like a solid plan. So I go over there. And I took my friend's advice and signed up for the IV. So they're giving me an IV. And you know what the medic says is she's sticking me with a needle and putting a blanket on me because I started to shiver. She goes... Please don't fall asleep. Last year, I had a guy pass out and pee himself. Don't do that. (laughs) So I was sure to tell my buddy, hey, they remember you. (laughs) The only way I I survived that is that I was not double-minded in my training. And it, it was a little... Annoying, we'll say, to spend so much time training because I did not understand what I was signing up for when I began that process. That I was taking on a part-time job and how long it was going to take to go through the, the distances, uh, to ride a bike for that long because why would anyone do that? Uh, I didn't really necessarily want to, but I knew if I was going to do it, I had to focus on it. That was the objective. And if something didn't line up with the objective... It had to go. A lot of things got chopped from the schedule. 
and there, there wasn't a lot of room on the schedule. Um, this was when Ariella was born in the, in the middle of this process. We bought our first house during this process. Uh, I was checking into new command during this process. Our life was very busy and hectic, uh, so much so that when Diane got pregnant with our third child, Zilla, she said, so now you're going to do something crazy, like do another Iron Man or sign up for something else that's ridiculous. Because apparently, whenever these things happen, we now have to, to move, and I've got I've to pull an antic. All of this to say, and I, I tell you that story, one, because that's a day I'm not going to forget. Uh, but also, that was a culmination of a lot of training and hard work. If any of you saw me that day, you would know this was not a result of talent. If you are double-minded in your efforts on what God has called you to, or even just your individual goals, which some of you set six days ago or so, and probably half of you have already broken them, your New Year's resolutions, if you are double-minded, you're going to fail, and you'll be frustrated because you're not going to entirely understand why. Now, I love the language James uses here like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. That's very specific. Where else do we see talk of wind and waves along with a lack of faith? Peter, in Matthew 14. Immediately afterward, this is after um, feeding the masses, He, Yeshua, compelled the disciples to get into the boat and to go ahead of him to the other side. Well, he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, a.m. time. He came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Yeshua spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter responded and said to him, Lord, if it is you, Command me to come to you on the water. That's a really bold move. I would not have said that. None of the other disciples said it either. But Peter was Peter. So he, Yeshua, said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Yeshua. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And when he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Yeshua reached out with his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly God's son. If you ask God for wisdom, 
And by the way, if you can't ask God for wisdom, I don't know how you can ask God for anything. Wisdom is something in your, in your mind. You didn't ask God to impact a relationship or your job or for the ability to walk on water. You asked him for wisdom. If you have not tested this, if you have not implemented this, if this is something you don't regularly ask God for as you're living your life, God, give me the wisdom and the understanding and the discernment to do what you put me here to do and to serve the people you put me here to serve, like Solomon prayed. You need to do that now, today. Don't wait. God is faithful, and he will give you wisdom. But if you're asking for it half-heartedly, if it's a, God, give me the wisdom on how to proceed with this training process, but I really don't want to do this thing. Or, God, give me the wisdom on how to heal this relationship, but I actually kind of hate that person, so let him have it too. Do you really think God is going to come through on this and give you wisdom? Or is he going to look at you and say, you are being double-minded in what you're doing? You have one mind here on earth in your flesh, and the other mind is looking towards heaven, but you can't serve two masters. You have to decide which you want. Are you going to keep your eyes on Messiah Yeshua, on your master? Are you going to keep your eyes on God? Or are you going to look around at the physical evidence around you of waves and wind, and what you see is certain disaster, and focus on that. And what you focus on is what you're going to get. If your focus intently stays on God, then you will get more of him. If your focus is on all the disastrous things around you, whether it's in your own personal life, whether it's in your congregation, whether it's on a national level, you're going to get more of that. All the enemy has to do, all Satan has to do is to get you to take your eyes off God. He honestly doesn't much care what else you put it on. In the screw tape letters, Wormwood's getting onto screw tape. If you're familiar with the text, it's two demons, a demon guarding to his nephew demon. And he tells them, why are you trying to get your, your subjects to engage in extreme debauchery? You can damn his soul with a deck of cards just as easily. So many of us can be led away, have our marriages ruined, have our lives ruined, and have our souls damned because we would not put our focus on God, but we insisted on putting it somewhere else. Would the music team please come up? Notice... Peter's response when he said, Lord, save me, as he was sinking, which was a direct result of the faith he was applying in that moment, and that the faith of the wind and the waves to harm him. Immediately, Yeshua reached out his hand. Cry out to God in faith, and he will move. Would you please stand and pray with me?
Avinu Shavat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Lord, we thank you for the words of the epistle uh, your servant James wrote. Lord, we thank you for the humility that he showed, even being a half-brother of the Master, being incredibly credentialed. He chose to only identify himself as a bondservant. Lord, I ask that same humility would be in each of us. Lord, I ask that the faith, the faith that you desire for us to have, not one that only changes our lives, but one that changes those around us, that faith would be continually made manifest. Lord, each person here has a struggle, has a trial, has a frustration, has a temptation, has a test that possibly no one else knows about, that they don't want to share. So Lord, I ask that you would give each person here the wisdom they need to proceed in that part of their life, whether it's work, whether it's finances, whether it's relationship. Lord, I ask that you would give them the wisdom they need to navigate it. That where they need to forgive, they would forgive. Where they need to watch their tongue, they would watch their tongue. Where they need to walk in closer obedience, they would walk in closer obedience. Lord, I ask that you would give each person here the wisdom and that they would grow in their faith. That we would all become stronger, more powerful, but most of all, wiser. Disciples of the Master Yeshua. Say.